Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 this morning is where I want us to start. I'm going to take about 10 minutes or so uh, just to lay some groundwork before we take the Lord's Supper to give some explanation and remind us of some things that are important uh, from God's Word that tell us a lot about how we are to celebrate this called the Lord's Supper. So Luke chapter 22 is where, where I want us to start. You know, Jesus spoke in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper, and he was the one who put into place really the first practice of the Lord's Supper, but it goes all the way back really to the Old Testament. There are ties back to the Old Testament, and we see this in Luke chapter 22. So pick up with me here, Luke 22. We're going to begin in verse 14, and uh, let's see how Luke captures for us some of the details from that first recognition of the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, verse 14. It says, when the hour had come, he, and that's a reference to Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread... And given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so there was a symbolism there of the bread representing the body of Jesus. Verse 20, he says, And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And that word, that phrase, new covenant, is significant. Well, I want you to jump ahead now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's the last passage we'll turn to. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because what we find here is that in the decades after these events that are captured by Luke, we find that Jesus would be crucified. And he would give his life on the cross. He would ultimately, three days later, be raised from the dead. We understand that. Scripture is very clear about that. And then 40 days after that, he would return to heaven. Well, after that, the Holy Spirit would come, and we would find in the book of Acts, chapter 2 specifically, that the church, as we know it, would be birthed into existence. Uh, The church would begin. There had never been this concept called a church before, a local fellowship of believers, until we read of it in Acts chapter 2. And so the church is birthed into existence. The church begins to grow. The gospel spreads all over that part of the world. And everywhere the gospel goes, it seems, more people are coming to Christ, and little churches are getting planted. Well, one of those churches was in a city called Corinth, and eventually Paul, the apostle, would write a letter to this church called 1 Corinthians. Well, let's read here a few decades after the events that were captured by Luke. Let's read here 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and see what Paul has to say about this thing called the Lord's Supper. You'll find that he says much the same thing, exactly the same thing, actually, that Jesus had to say. And so pick up with me, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul writes and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I'd be willing to say that there have been a few of you at least, probably a significant number, who have been present for the so-called reading of one's will. 
is the last will and testament. Probably many of you have sat down with an attorney or you went online and you filled out your own will, your last will and testament, and you decided who was going to get all the things that you had worked for, all those things that were so important to you. And well, I'm going to give my, my, uh, my money to this person and my house to that person and my outdoor grill, if you're a man, that's going to go to this person and my Mickey Mantle baseball card, that's going to go to the other person and my, you know, the list goes on and on. You decide who's going to get what you have, right? Well, interestingly here, when we read in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, in that, that verse, verse 25, we see in Jesus' words, this cup is the new covenant. Well, in the Greek language, there's a specific Greek word for that. It's called diatheke. And that word refers to something similar to what we would understand as a last will and testament. In fact, some of you may have an English translation of the Bible. It doesn't say New Covenant. It says New Testament, and that's what it's referring to. Well, let me tell you some things, interestingly, about that Greek word, diatheke, that we translate as New Covenant. Because 2,000 years ago, here's what it meant. It meant a covenant, not a contract. Interestingly, we looked at that same phrase back when we talked about marriage, that it was a covenant, not a contract. It, it, it couldn't be broken. Once it was put in place, then it was treated as a covenant that existed. That covenant, number two, was initiated by the owner of, of all the goods. You know, there was an owner, and then there would be a receiver, and the owner was the one who initiated that contract. You know, it wasn't by anyone else that it was initiated, only by the owner. That contract was only put in place, it was only enacted upon the owner's death. Right? This is 2,000 years ago. And he had the right to put certain conditions upon the person who would receive his stuff. Interesting to me that when Jesus speaks of our salvation. He uses that phrase, new covenant. When Paul speaks of our salvation, he uses that phrase, new covenant, diatheke. And isn't it interesting how it fits perfectly because our salvation, our relationship with God is a covenant, not a contract. That in itself tells us that our relationship with God as believers is eternal. It is, it, it is ongoing and it is forever. I don't know the denomination you may have been raised in. I don't know where some of your teaching may have come from. It doesn't matter what a denomination teaches or what an individual person teaches. What matters is what Scripture teaches. And if you believe or have ever been taught that we can lose our salvation, well, you would have serious issue with that, that particular verse because even in the context of the Lord's Supper, we're taught that our relationship with God is a covenant. It cannot be broken. We cannot forfeit it. And aren't you glad that you can't sin enough to break your covenant with God, that there is not one person, the devil himself even, who can come and who can snatch away your relationship with God? It is not a contract that is unbinding in nature. It is a covenant that is long-lasting, ongoing, everlasting, for, uh, 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 for instance, that nothing can break our relationship with God. Number two, it is a covenant that is initiated by the owner. You know, I, I don't have a relationship with God because I came bebopping into his presence saying, hey, this sounds like a deep deal. I think I'll have a relationship with you. Whenever you're ready, God, you know, I'm ready to go. No, it was God who got a hold of me as a little boy, and, and he, he convicted me of my sin on the deepest part of who I am. And my mom was the one who shared the gospel with me. And, and it was God who drew me to himself. And many of you, every one of you who have a relationship with God, you know and you remember that time when, when God drew you to himself, and your knuckles were white, and it may have been during a, a church service, and you were 
hanging on to that pew or hanging on to that seat, and, and you didn't quite know what to do, and there was a wrestling match going inside, and it was your will against God's, but bless the Lord, there was a point where he finally broke you down and you responded to him, but he's the one who started it. It was a covenant initiated by him, but it was only enacted upon his death. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he shed his blood for us, rose again from the dead, he accomplished everything that was needed for us to have a relationship with God. Only he could do that. And that's the significance of a moment like this, is that we, rep- uh, we, we recognize and we reflect on the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This isn't a moment. Listen, if we could be right with God because of our own good works, we'd put pictures of ourselves down front here, and we'd hang up our medals, and we'd put our certificates and drag stuff off our walls and off of our mantles and all those things that point to us if we could be saved by our own merit and by our own effort why not just glorify ourselves but we can't no one can be saved that way it's all because of him only by him and that's why we recognize through the bread that represents his body and the juice that represents his blood that only he can save people like us and it was all put in place by his death and his resurrection but listen there was a fourth element remember There was a fourth element to the nature of covenants 2,000 years ago and that the owner had the right to imply and to to place certain conditions upon the one who would receive his stuff. And God as well places conditions upon a relationship with him that we're not all saved automatically. And we're not saved because we go to a church or because we do good deeds. Listen, the conditions he has placed, he makes very clear in Scripture It's through our repentance when we turn from sin and our faith in Jesus Christ when we surrender our lives to him that we're made right with God. And so we come to a place like this, the Lord's Supper. And Scripture speaks of it very, very highly. It's a time to take seriously. In fact, listen what it says as we pick up in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Notice what it says. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. This was a letter written to believers, 1 Corinthians. It was written to Christians, and in this particular portion of this letter, there are given instructions for us as to how to take the Lord's Supper. And it says we're not to take of it in an unworthy manner. This is a time for Christians, and if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God, the, the biblical picture would be that if you're not yet at that place where you've surrendered your life to Christ, not willing to do that yet, you're still searching, you're, you're still asking questions, you're still thinking through this, then I would ask that you just let these plates pass as they come out of reverence for, the, for, the, for, for, the Lord's, for God's Word. But of course, the greatest desire would be that right where you sit, <laughs> that you make the choice, even now, today, to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He says not to take of it in an unworthy manner. That's spoken to believers, and I believe it shows us that we are to take inventory of our lives to make sure that not only are we in the faith, but that we're also not living in a way that brings reproach upon God's name. That we live in a way that's consistent with our title as Christian. In fact, verse 20, uh, 28, look at what it says. A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so this is a serious time. It's a time for us to check and to make sure that we are in relationship with God, that we've turned from our sin, that we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And so is that a decision that you've made? And if not, is it a decision that you're ready to make today? 
Because right where you sit today, you can choose to invite Jesus himself who gave his life for you, who rose again to step into your life, to forgive you and to take over if you're only willing to turn from sin and turn to him. Are you walking in a way that brings him honor, that brings him glory? You know, the Lord's Supper is a great place for us to take inventory and for us to ensure that we haven't wandered in our faith, we haven't wandered in our commitment to the Lord. This is a place to come home. It's a checkpoint for us to check our lives and to make sure that no sin has crept in that we've begun to embrace. It may be bitterness, it may be disunity, it may be selfishness, it may be pride, it may be anger, it may be a broken relationship, but that we check that at the door and say, Lord, forgive me and help me to live a life that honors you, both before him and before others. And so as we pray this morning, preparing for the Lord's Supper, we'll take in just a moment of the bread and of the juice that represent his body and his blood that were given for us. Lord, we thank you today for the clarity of your word. Lord, your word makes it so clear to us of what this time represents, that it represents, it signifies, and it points to and glorifies and highlights the person of Jesus and him alone. For it's only Christ who gave his life for us. It's only Jesus who proved himself victorious over death and over the grave and even over sin. For he died sinless and spotless for us and rose again victorious. And every life that turns from sin, placing their faith in him, can receive not only forgiveness, but Lord, relationship with you that will never, ever end. And so we thank you today for what you've done for us. Bless now we pray this time. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.